I would invite you to turn at this time to Mark chapter 6. We're continuing to look at the gospel that Mark has composed, thinking in terms of what this meant to Mark's first audience, thinking in terms of what this means to us. And we're looking at the section from chapter 6, verse 14 through 29. Even though it's called the death of Herod, excuse me, the death of John the Baptist, it is actually a story about Herod and Herodias. And I want us to think about that as we read this. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. On a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, this is a terrible story. It's a horrid story. It's a story of deep wickedness. And yet all things in Scripture have been written for us, upon whom the ages have come, the end of the ages have come, that we, through the perseverance patience of the scriptures might have hope. 
So we might pray, Father, that even out of this desperately wicked story, we might come to understand more and more of the grace of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm currently reading Pilgrim's Progress again. To make it easy on myself, I've chosen to read an updated English version. It goes back to 1960s when it was updated, but it's very faithful to the original. So I, I found myself this week in a section from Pilgrim's Progress that goes this way. It's the passage where the character interpreter takes Pilgrim into his house, into a very large parlor, quoting, that was full of dust. And when they have observed it for a moment, the interpreter called for a man to sweep it. When he began to sweep, the dust rose and filled the whole room so that Christian almost suffocated. Then the interpreter said to a maid who stood by, Bring water and sprinkle the room, which she did. Then the dust settled, and the maid swept the room clean. Christian asked, What does this signify? Interpreter answered, This parlor is the heart of a man who has never been sanctified and cleansed by the gospel, by the grace of God through the gospel. The dust is his original sin and corruption that had defiled the whole man. The man who began to sweep at first is the law. The maid who brought the water and finished the job is the gospel. The man, though working with all his might, could not clean the room. He only stirred up the dust and made it worse to live in. This shows that the law, by its working, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, only revives sin, causes sin to show its strength, and increases its activity in the soul. Though it discovers and forbids sin, it does not give the life and power to subdue it. So man cannot of himself give up his sin without first receiving divine life and help from above. What John the Baptist intended in this allegory we find illustrated in the story of Herod and Herodias. Here we see sin's anatomy under the examination of the law of God. Here we find a morally wicked human being, really two of them, exposed to the righteousness of God. And their response is to grow more and more wicked. And we are deeply reminded by this that fallen human beings love their own passions more than the righteousness of God. And therefore sinners can only be saved by grace. So, I want us to look at the story. I want us to see the anatomy of evil that it gives in a two-part analysis. And then I want us to speak to the antidote, which is the gospel. The first part of the analysis, as we look at this story, is simply this. 
The law functions to expose evil and to expose evil as a witness against the sinful human being. The most fundamental biblical truth about God's law is that God's law itself defines what is right and wrong for the human race. And that reality of what is right and wrong is actually written and embedded upon the heart of every human being, Romans chapter 2. Therefore, the law will function as a witness against the sinful human being in terms of the person's character and conduct. And so first I want us to consider the impact of the law upon Herod and then consider the impact of the law upon Herodias. Now, with respect to the impact of of the law itself upon Herod, we have to consider that the law's work against Herod was to expose his sinfulness. And this is pictured for us and presented for us in the ministry of John the Baptist. I want us to see why we can so quickly identify the ministry of John the Baptist with the very law of God. Now that equation comes, first of all, in terms of what, what Gabriel spoke to the father of John the Baptist before John the Baptist was even conceived. This is in Luke chapter 1, verses 15 and 17 where Gabriel says to John that his son will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared But then in Luke chapter 3, we have the ministry of John the Baptist described this way, that when John came, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry that was in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. And if you recall, the prophet Elijah brought God's word against the wickedness of a king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, against the prophets of Baal, and against the apostate nation of Israel. The ministry of Elijah was to prosecute a covenantal lawsuit against the people of God who were breaking their covenant with God. We see that the focus then of John's message was upon repentance, to bring people back into conformity to the moral law of God. John himself says, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. What a wonderfully sensitive, seeker-sensitive call to worship this is, by the way. It's what all of us should emulate. Listen carefully. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Just a little comment on how off-base many churches are with respect to the kind of message that needs to be announced to people with respect to what their true condition is. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We are reformed Presbyterians. We are, by implication. 
For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, the crowds respond to this and they say, in light of this, what are we supposed to do? And John's answer is to begin to practice what the law actually requires and bear forth that kind of fruit. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you're authorized to do. And even soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, but be content with your wages. The ministry of John the Baptist was precisely like the ministry of the Old Testament prophets before him. He called people back to a true and authentic obedience and keeping of the law of God. He called them back to repentance. He called them back to honor the truth of God and God's righteousness. Then we see, as the story is given to us by Mark, that Herod comes under the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, Herod becomes the direct object of the ministry of John the Baptist. The reason for this is to be found in the historical background of King Herod and Herodias. Uh, Herod was one of the sons of that greater King Herod, the King Herod who reigned during the time of Jesus' birth. That Herod had a number of sons, uh, a number of which survived the fact that Herod murdered several of his sons. So history knows this Herod as Herod Antipas. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee. His first marriage was to King Eratos. Now, King Eratos was the king of the nearby Nabataean Arabs. Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian, that they had been married for a great while. But on a visit to Rome, Herod actually stayed with his brother, and fell in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. And the two of them conspired together so that Herod would divorce his wife, Herodias would divorce her husband, in order for those two to be able to marry each other, which, in fact, they accomplished. So in his role as a prophet, John the Baptist brings the standard of God's law to bear against Herod's immoral life, his immoral marriage. We're not told how... John got this audience with Herod. But we read in verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Apparently, John had made this accusation. He had made this claim against Herod in some repeated fashion. And we know something of Herod's response to this. Verse 20, Mark tells us, Herod feared John, knowing that he, John, was a righteous and holy man. Yet in the complexity of Herod's conscience, when Herod hears John speak, we read, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod gets John's message. Herod gets the voice of God through John. Herod gets 
the law of God speaking against him in regard to Herodias. Herod knows he's guilty of an illicit marriage tantamount to adultery. Now consider then the impact upon Herodias. Her response to John's accusations against her illicit husband, then their relationship, are stated in verse 19. She holds a grudge against John. A sense of resentment. A deep sense of ill will. Her reaction is that of someone who is caught and exposed as doing evil. It is, in fact, such a common reaction. People who do wrong and people who know they do wrong often bear grudges against those who expose it, those who, in fact, get them caught in what they're doing. Now, it's the function of the law to expose evil. The law witnesses and the law testifies, just as it's written in John chapter 3, verse 19, the law testifies that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So when the law of God exposes human evil, there are complex reactions. There's fear. There's resentment. But where there is no grace of God at work, the reaction to being confronted by the law will never amount to anything that is truly godly. There will never be any genuine repentance. And we see neither in Herod or Herodias. Now, the second point of analysis is that the story of Herod and his wife demonstrates that what the law does is to exacerbate, it's to aggravate evil. The law, in its proper function, does not subdue sin. The law in its proper function, aggravates evil. In other words, the impact of the law upon the sinner who does not repent is, in fact, to aggravate the sinner's wickedness. Transgressions will increase. So what we see here in Herod and Herodias is that they become more wicked in the context of their exposure to the righteousness of the law of God. Look at this. We can do a kind of step-by-step analysis of the growth of Herod's sin. First of all, Mark gives us a rather full picture of how the path of Herod's sin grows larger. First, Herod goes from hearing John's accusations without repenting to then arresting John and putting him in prison. So he shuts down John's public ministry. He shuts down a public voice of criticism. But far worse than that, at the same time, he shuts down the public ministry and the public good that John was doing on behalf of the people of Israel and for the sake of the kingdom of God. It is always a great sin to silence the godly. And since Herod has his kingly power by the sovereign will of God, silencing the public voice of God's messenger, God's prophet, is a great misuse of Herod's power that God has entrusted to him. We can see a second part of the development here. 
Herod's sin grows in the direction of foolishness because he acts for the sake of expediency rather than acting for what is morally right. In Herod's mind, he thinks he can solve three issues or problems which he faces by putting John in prison. But in doing so, he actually promotes his own moral corruption. See, so the first issue is the public denunciation of his marriage. That's a kind of public embarrassment. So, because John is in prison, that ceases. But Herod, people still remember. People still know what the prophet of God accused you of. It doesn't solve anything. But secondly, it means that Herod can now listen to John whenever he wants to. And for some strange reason, in the complexity of Herod's fallen conscience, he does play around with the law of God by wanting to hear it. We see this in verse 20, that, that it, it, where it makes it clear that, that Herod listens to John on several occasions. Yet, this only increases Herod's sin and guilt. Hearing more of the truth of the law of God without repenting works to harden the human heart. Earlier we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that reminded us that all the things that were written in the past were written as an example for us. There were 10 plagues on Egypt. There were 10 specific times that God's word came to Pharaoh. And the words that came to Pharaoh were words that basically said, this judgment will come unless you repent unless you let my people go. And we read that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart continued and got deeper and deeper the more Pharaoh was exposed to the words of God. If we hear the truth of the word of God, if we hear the truth of the law of God, and we do not repent, the human heart becomes harder. A third issue, Herod thinks he's going to satisfy Herodias in her grudge against John. Uh, He thinks he can protect John from her, what he perceives to be her, her murderous desires by putting John inside prison. He wants to keep John from getting killed. But here is the problem. God governs the world. We don't. Kings don't govern the world. Kings do not govern the consequences of their actions. It is so common in the world to think this way. If I do this small evil, I can produce a greater good. If I can put John in prison, a small evil, I can protect him from the greater evil of Herodias somehow getting her way and killing this prophet of God. It is common in the world to think again and again and again that the means will justify the ends. A small act of evil here will justify a greater good here. Herod thinks saving John's life is good, but it will require the evil of locking him up. It never works out this way. In God's world, 
It never truly works out that some small evil here in order to produce a greater good there is something which the living God ever honors. And as events proves, the expediency, the kind of action that Herod conceives of simply does not work. The occasion that collapses all of Herod's moral reasoning is his own birthday and the dancing of his stepdaughter. So that leads to the third aspect of this development and the increase in Herod's corruption. Verse 22, we read that the daughter of Herodias dances. And this dancing pleases the king and all of his guests. Now, I think it's likely that this dance was not the hokey pokey. That's not what this is all about. It's probably the case that in all of human history, the hokey pokey never enticed a king to promise to grant up to even half of his own kingdom. But here is Herod making a bold and rash promise that amounts to a sin of great foolishness. And then the fourth stage of the corruption that we find in Herod's life. Herodias sees the opportunity provided by Herod's promise, and she seizes it. In verses 24 and 25, she tells her daughter to answer the king's promise by requesting the head of John the Baptist. And so now Herod is caught in a dilemma. But it is a dilemma that his own rash promise has created. On the one hand, he can deny the promise in order to save John, which is what he actually wants to do at one level. But if he does so, it will cause him to lose face. It will anger Herodias. So then on the other hand, he can deny his own good judgment Grant the promise to have John killed. He can save face with all of his guests. He can make his wife happy and become an accomplice in murder in the act of doing so. So, Herod refuses to protect the man who belongs to God because it is too costly with his wife and his public reputation with his guest will suffer. Stage five. Sin grows to its full extent. We see that Herod had to murder his own conscience before he could murder John the Baptist. Herod's part in ordering the murder of John was to please others in violation of his own sense of right and wrong. He sins against both wisdom and righteousness to become the murderer of a holy man he fears and respects. He sins against his own inner witness of what is right. The worst sins you and I could ever commit the worst sins that anyone commit are those sins that are against the voice of our own conscience. Herod murders his conscience first so that he can murder 
John the Baptist. Now Mark also shows us briefly the growth of Herodias' sin. She begins as one who willingly divorces her lawful husband in order to enter into an illicit marriage. Then we see that this moral corruption gets deeply provoked by the law through the words of John the Baptist in his condemnation of her marriage. This gives birth to a grudge which then gestates to become an unswerving desire to put John to death. Within her own heart first, she becomes a murderer. And then the second stage, it's clear Herodias becomes constantly vigilant for an occasion to satisfy her murderous desires against John. The grudge grows into a constant vigil of hatred looking for opportunity. Then the third stage, really the worst of what Herodias does, the corruption of her own heart, the murder inside of her, leads her to draw her own daughter into this wicked plot to kill John. She is happy to put blood on the hands of her own daughter in order to put an end to the voice of the law of God in her life and in the life of her husband. And such is the nature of sin. It has an absolute enmity against the law of God. It has such a deep hatred of what is righteous in the sight of God so that a mother would drag her own daughter down into the depths of her own moral corruption. What does this teach us then about how the law of God works? This story illustrates the functioning of the law. Two human beings are exposed to the law of God. The law exposes their sin. Their consciences are awakened. And the law through their consciences bears witness against them that they are guilty. But further, there is no grace in this story. This is not a salvation story about how two wicked rulers come to repentance. There is no repentance at all. Rather, the law continues to work. Sin becomes aggravated. Sin grows. The law, apart from grace, never makes anyone better. The Apostle Paul illustrates this in his own spiritual biography when he says in Romans chapter 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all manner of covetousness. For when the commandment came, sin came alive. We're teaching a similar thing about the law. In the last part of chapter 5, Paul says, But the law was given so that transgression might increase. As Bunyan has written, Though the law discovers and forbids sin, it does not give the life and power to subdue it. So man cannot of himself give up his sin without first receiving divine life and help from above. 
So what does the story teach us? It teaches us we need grace. Either sinners are broken by the law, or they become greater breakers of the law. Neither Herod nor Herodias were broken by the law, so they became greater breakers of the law. The anatomy of evil shows the lostness of any human life without the grace of the gospel. Even more, how sinners can be shown their guilt before God, but loving the things of the world more than the righteousness of God, they will go to war against the law of God. This has never been more true than in our own era when we see what has happened to the biblical law of marriage within the Church of Jesus Christ in Western civilization. The leadership of almost every major denomination over the past four decades has mounted a non-stop attack on the law of God concerning marriage. Instead of the law of God on marriage driving church leaders to repentance, They have become the architects of ever greater breaking of the law while encouraging others to do likewise. But we should expect no less than these terrible outcomes when church leaders and major denominations have ceased to believe the gospel. But the personal application brings us to our hymn of the month. Top lady the writer of these lyrics, understood the working of the law and the working of the grace of the gospel. So I want us to hear these lyrics again in the same order in which we sang them this morning, which reflects the actual order of the working of the grace of God in the soul and the heart of those who repent. So Top Lady writes, stanza two, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. You can sweep the dirty floor, and sweep the dirty floor, and sweep the dirty floor, and the clouds of dust will arise, and choke off all of life. The labors of our hands cannot fulfill the law's demands. Stanza three. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The filthy floor must be sprinkled from the fountain of the blood of Christ. The law must be conquered through the grace of the gospel. And finally then, stanza one. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure cleanse me from its guilt and power. Amen.
Father, we would pray that hearing your word, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.